Good morning and welcome to the morning briefing. It's Thursday, August 25, and today is episode 194. I'm Phil Brandt, President and CEO at AIM, and with me as always, your friend of mine, legal expert, Bert Garland, shareholder with Ogletree Deacons. Together, we bring practical, timely, and accurate insight into today's workplace, as it is our goal to keep you informed so you can more effectively lead your organization. Burton, good morning. How are you today? I'm doing well, Phil. I'm doing well. I'm, uh, you know, everybody needs to be careful out there. Kids are back in school. A lot of people walking around uh, on the way to school, school buses. Uh, but uh, yeah, I'm feels, doing well. Feels I, like America out there today is what you're it, saying. It, it does. It feels feels like a return to normalcy today. Uh, Maybe those speaking, kids should stay home and continue to work from home. They're more effective at home and learning and working. You know, what's good for the goose is good for the gander in that case, right? Yeah, exactly. Speaking of animals, I, I do want to touch on a on a topic. I want to make all of our viewers aware today that uh, America's new front running uh, emotional support animal, Wally the Gator. Wally the Gator, an emotional support animal. You can find Wally's Facebook page. And uh, Nick, do you have a, a, a little little something you can share with the viewers on Wally the Gator, the emotional support animal? We can probably roll just a little bit and, and talk about it. But yeah, there's a story out there about Wally. How does he help there, Bert? Well, he, he's an emotional support alligator, and uh, his <laughs> his uh, owner uh, went to his own doctor, not Wally's doctor, but his own doctor. And uh, the, the doctor said, yeah, well, I'll, I'll certify him as a uh, emotional support animal for you. And Wally, you can see... Uh, in some of those videos in that picture right there, he's wearing his little emotional support vest. Now, I want to remind everybody, this is not a service animal under the ADA, uh, but just an emotional support animal, which it's obviously very, very easy uh, to get a uh, doctor these days to, uh, to to qualify an animal as an emotional support animal. So I don't know about you, but I think it would give me much more anxiety hanging out with Wally with those teeth that I see in there than, than it would provide actual emotional support. But uh, just a little fun story for the day. No, that's a good one. I, I think about I'm walking through the airport and I'm seeing the alligator and I'm sure hoping that that person's not sitting next to me on the airplane. Right. <laughs> and uh, you sit down and here comes Wally to sit next to you on the airplane. I, I'm just not sure that's going to work for me. Yeah, we, we we've we've talked about some of this before with emotional support animals and things really did start to get out of hand. Uh, in recent years where on airplanes, we've, we've got some photos of uh, emotional support turkeys. We've got emotional support uh, uh, pigs when pigs fly on airplanes. And, uh, you know, I think that uh, one of the things that the airlines have done in, in the last year or so is they've really cracked down on what qualifies as an emotional support animal. The strangest one I've ever seen in person uh, with somebody who was, who was traveling with their emotional support parakeet. And uh -huh. uh, yeah, right there in the row in front of me. And uh, now, Bert, I was, if I if I think back to some of our early episodes on the morning <laughs> briefing, there was some there was some parakeets flying around in the background of your house when you were sheltered in. There, there were there were they uh, I, I never considered them emotional support animals. And uh, once once we got our new puppy, which was just immediately pre COVID, 
uh, that new puppy, I, I'm I'm sad to say, took care of that last parakeet. Well, very very <clears throat> traumatic day in the Garland household. I would say household. that was a support animal <laughs> for your puppy. I think it was a yeah, support, support a life support for the puppy. No, more more of an appetizer than support. <laughs> Nick, I'm not sure if he was calling you or me the 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 turkey or the pig there, but uh, one of the two of us just got called a name. Yeah. But, <laughs> Emotional support animals. I think we are getting carried away with it uh, in total, but let's let's move on. We have some other things to talk about uh, that are current events taking place. And I, I want to jump into the loan forgiveness that uh, was recently just announced uh, by President Biden. And just let me give some background uh, information on this. And then I'd I really like to get some uh, thoughts on this from you, Bert, um, because this is going to help some people. And you know, regardless, of what we think it's going to help people, but you know, I can't, I can't express enough how it just doesn't sit well with me. I just don't like when the government bails out individuals who actively, consciously um, get into situations, um, knowing exactly what they're getting into. Um, and needless to say, um, this is going to help. And if if it helps you, I'm happy for that. It's not you at all that I'm would. Be disappointed in. It's really the government. If I was eligible for it, I would take full advantage of it. However, here's the facts. Borrowers are eligible for student loan forgiveness if their income is less than $125,000 for individuals or less than $250,000 for married couples or head of household. Um, this applies for Pell Grant recipients who receive $20,000 in student uh, loan debt forgiveness if they meet income requirements. Uh, let's see. Um, the Department of Education estimates that roughly 27 million borrowers with Pell Grants will be eligible for this. Um, Parent PLUS loans, uh, which are issued to parents of dependent undergraduate students um, uh, who also meet the supplement other financial aids. Federal grant loans held by the Department of Education are also eligible for debt forgiveness. Uh, and current college students with loans are eligible for debt relief. All right, so there's going to be some help on the way for those people who have taken federal student loans. These are not private loans. These are really the federal student loans, um, and they need some relief. It looks like that's going to happen, but if we just take one look further before you count on that, I do think there's going to be some objections by both parties, um, the Democratic Party and the Republican Party, as it relates to whether or not President Biden has this authority. Um, and so I'll read the quote from Nancy Pelosi. Um, People think that the president of the United States has the power for debt forgiveness. She said he does not. He can postpone, he can delay, but he does not have the power. Pelosi argued that student loan forgiveness can only be accomplished through an act of Congress. Um, so I don't know where that lies, Bert. I don't know if you have an opinion on that or not, but I would sure like to hear it. Yeah, I, I really don't have an opinion on uh, whether or not he has the authority to do this. Uh, it would seem to me that it would be uh, it, it's something beyond the power of the executive branch of the federal government that, it, that uh, as much as I, I don't care for her, I do think Nancy Pelosi is probably correct. Uh, but uh, again, I'm not a constitutional uh, expert on that issue and have not delved into it. Uh, I, I think the the more problematic piece of this is um, 
you know, they're, they're talking about $300 billion of, of, of student loan forgiveness here. And uh, it's, it, it, as people know me through, from the program, uh, I, I definitely like, uh, I'm, I'm, I'm a capitalist at heart, uh, love, love it or hate it, I'm a capitalist at heart. And uh, more than I consider myself Republican, Democrat, whatever you want to characterize me, I'm a capitalist at heart. And I agree with you, Phil, that people took out these loans. They knew what they were uh, getting into. And, you know, I, 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 I think that this is something that the federal government should stay out of. Uh, you know, I look back, I, I paid off my student loans, uh, you know, 15, 20 years ago. Uh, I took a bet on myself and got into some pretty pretty serious debt to go to uh, undergrad and then to law school and uh, was able to then get a job in the legal profession and worked hard to pay those loans off and uh, you, you know gave gave me some skin in the game toward my own career and my own education early on and uh, I, I think this is just a, a terrible idea. I think that uh, you know you, you you even looking beyond the optics of whether this is a bribe uh, to to young adults out there who may have student loans or a payoff to the education industry. I will note just a couple of things that some statistics show. The, the cost of education in this country in the last 10 years has risen somewhere between 25 and 40%. And this is really a bailout to education institutions. Uh, it's not going to help our inflation uh, at all. And the other thing I'll note is that universities in this country are sitting on top of endowments worth $200 billion. And now they're seeking to transfer the student loan burden uh, to to the American taxpayer, and I just think this is an awful, awful idea. Yeah, I'm I'm with you, and again, that and I know you and I both are not um, suggesting that um, in any way that's a dig at anyone that might be able no. to take advantage of it. Take advantage of it, right? The tax laws and uh, and forgiveness laws that are there, take advantage of them. It's more about our our country's policy, and and I'm in line with that. I mean, obviously, we're both wearing blue shirts today. We got up thinking the same way this morning, uh, at least on this particular issue. But let's talk about how this impacts employers, because I think that becomes uh, the question we're going to have to wrestle with. So let me just share this scenario. Um, employers have been struggling to hire people. The people that, uh, in some case, are uh, on, um, you know, the hard to hire list are college graduates. Um, and one technique that we've used uh, in our hiring strategies is to offer loan forgiveness strategies in our offer letters. So someone might have thirty, forty, or more thousand dollars worth of debt. I hire a student um, who has that debt, and we. Uh, say, look, every year for the next four years, five years, we'll give you, after you complete a year of work, five $10,000 bonus to help pay your student loan debt. Now, all of a sudden, my student loan debt's going to be forgiven, um, or a large percent of it will be forgiven, if not all of it. And the employer is going to ask themselves, do I still need to pay that loan forgiveness bonus or incentive that we had in our offer letter? And that's what we're going to have to struggle with. And I'm going to argue that the people that you have hired are going to say yes. And uh, owners and, and business leaders, particularly if hiring demand slow down, are going to say, well, heck no. 
Um, is gonna, there a legal position we should be aware of on this? I'm, I'm gonna I'm gonna open it up for you, Phil, to to slam this one home. I'm gonna give you a two word response on this, and that it response, depends. Yeah, there you go, there you go. You were ready for it. It, it depends on whether you have. There, it there we go. Yeah, <laughs> mind you, blowing. Nick. So it, it it of course depends on on several factors, and that is uh, number one: Do you have the appropriate language in your offer letter? Uh, disclaiming any type of contract with the employee that the contract or the employment relationship is one that's at will, terms and conditions can change. So I think that's the starting point there. Of course, the next uh, step in this is, is whether all of the loans are going to be forgiven. Uh, if you've got uh, $40,000 in loans outstanding and the employer was willing to pay off $10,000, I think that the employer probably still will continue to pay off ten of that $40,000 and the employee is going to get a benefit of $10,000 from the government. If the employee has $10,000 of loans out there and they're eligible for this uh, student loan debt relief, and you as the employer were going to pay off that $10,000, I think it's a topic that employers are going to want to revisit uh, because at this point, it's going to be paid off by another source, assuming this goes through. Right. I, so I think we got some things to keep our eye on, and, and we will do that. Um, but it is a good idea to always either have AIM or Ogletree. Take a look at your offer letters that you're putting out. Most of the time, they're pretty standard forms that you uh, just change names and, and salaries and few pieces of data on and you release them. But, you know, every now and then it's a good idea just to check and make sure we're saying things the right way, depending on case law and activities like this. I know ours always suggest these are not contracts. Um, we're not bound to them. Um, and so on. And you want to make sure you have some of that standard language in there. Yeah. And, uh, and, and what I'll say on that, Phil, is, is that typically from an offer letter standpoint, assuming you have the correct language in your offer letter, and I strongly suspect that you do, uh, you've, you've stated that you have, and I think I may have had a hand in, in crafting some of your uh, offer letters there. And, uh, you know, one of the things that it turns around to is a claim of what's called detrimental reliance. It's not necessarily a breach of contract claim, but the claim is detrimental reliance. Did the person who you were seeking to hire rely on your offer letter to their own detriment? And we see those claims come up a lot when you offer like a relocation bonus uh, and a $10,000 relocation uh, fee and a, re a reimbursement and the individual moves uh, across the country to take the new job at your place of employment. And then all of a sudden, uh, within a week or two weeks, you rescind the job offer or terminate the employee. The employee can then ha have a potential claim of detrimental reliance. They relied on that job offer and selling their home out in California, paying moving expenses, et cetera, et cetera. And so I, I think that if you have the appropriate language in there, you'll avoid a breach of contract claim. And then you have to sort of look to see, did the, the $10,000 loan forgiveness, did the individual rely on that commitment to their own detriment? And yeah. uh, I think as long as you kind of parse it out and say, okay, if, if there's $40,000 in debt, we were going to pay 10 of it. The government's now going to pick up another 10, so be it, we're still going to go through with it. Or if there was $10,000 in debt, we were going to pay off the 10. I think we're in a position to say, well, we're not going to pay that off any longer. 
uh, let's let the government take it. And there's probably no detrimental reliance there. But again, yeah, fact specific questions. Yep, absolutely. And I think that makes complete sense to me. Um, all right, I just want to read one comment, then we're going to move on. I, I, I enjoyed Julie's comment here. My son wanted to go to a big name school, and we expressed, um, say, she expressed that we would not support that decision. He went out and joined the Army Guard to serve his country to ensure he received assistance to go to school to earn his bachelor degree. If students want loan forgiveness, they should be made to join the military service, get this benefit. I'm thankful for this commitment to work and hard, uh, to work hard and not getting something for free. I can relate to Julie's comment there. It's a, um, everyone takes different approaches um, and so on, but um, just wanted to share that comment. There's gonna be stories all sides of this. Again, if, if it works for you, that's great. Um, my comments are really towards policy, not uh, any one individual and the benefit they might receive. I Let's, agree with that, Phil and, and Julie. Thank you for your, in my opinion, my, my opinion here, excellent parenting. And uh, thank you to your son for his uh, hard work and his service. All right. Uh, so let's say I know we have people already answering the poll question, but let's get on with that. Is there a great divide between ownership and staff at your workplace when it comes to their general attitudes towards working remotely? Love to get your comments on our poll question. Um, that is a hot topic for us. It's all over the news. Apple has made some big news uh, this week on that. We're going to dive into it. But first, what I'd like to do is review last week's poll question. We just ran out of time and uh, we had some good results there. So Nick, if you can bring up last week's poll question, um, let's take a look at some of that. I'll try to cover some of the some of the highlights, I think 50, the poll question was, which of the following best describes your current management of talent? 50% uh, said struggling to find the right talent. 19.2% said struggling to find the right talent and to keep employees. 15.4% said struggling to find right talent and to keep employees and not affecting engaged workforce. And then finally, we had 11.5% excelling in all three areas. Uh, so sorry for not being able to get that to you um, last week uh, before we, we got off the air, but um, nevertheless, there it is for you. We appreciate your comments and participation. It helps all of us understand where we're at and how we move forward to make our workplace better and to make our communities better. Bert, let's talk about what Apple is saying. Apple employees are petitioning to protest against returning to the office. Sounds a lot like organizing to me. I think we're walking a really fine line here, but apparently Apple has said, hey, we're coming back to the office now. Apple was one of the leaders in boasting and holding out their chest that they liked hybrid working, they liked remote working, go work wherever you wanna work, all these types of things that started the country in that movement. And now they're saying, come back to work and employees don't like it and they're petitioning. Um, this could be a problem for any employer in this situation. Yeah, so there's a group called Apple Together, uh, which is a, a group of employees, uh, almost like, uh, kind, of, kind of like a union uh, that, that are, you know, and it's in the more of the professional sector uh, that's really pushing hard uh, against what Tim Cook has said about returning to the office. Now, I want to make it very clear 
that what Tim Cook has said is that uh, initially he wanted people to return to the office three days per week and they could and that employees could be approved to work remotely two days per week. So he well, was what, definitely what, that is not fair. I need work <laughs> forgiveness. He, he was definitely pushing uh, a hybrid work environment like most employers are. And the group Apple together uh, has gotten together and they they have have really pushed back on this and they've already seen some result from it. And that is that uh, apparently Tim Cook or upper management at Apple has has conceded or allowed this to flip flop a little bit uh, that two days per week in the office will be required with three day up to three days per week working remotely or uh, the third day per week is something that can be worked out between the employee and the company itself. So, Robert, so did Apple they together. Just, did they just agree on a contract? They did. They've not agreed on a contract. This is still in all likelihood uh, at will. But it is interesting that they're kind of negotiating with this group Apple together. One thing I will definitely stress is that even though this is not a union situation, the group Apple together, they're definitely engaged in what's called protected concerted activity under Section 7 of the National Labor Relations Act. Uh, they are a group of employees who are working together in concert uh, to uh, protest or challenge their terms and conditions of employment. So terminating employees, disciplining employees over this protected concerted activity would be illegal under the National Labor Relations Act independent of whether there's a union or not. Now, uh, so let's just explore this a little further. Let's take it uh, down a level than the great big, Apple's not listening to our podcast today, even though they should, I invite them to. Um, nevertheless, um, let's bring it down to a, a small, medium-sized employer. And they, and they have a small group of employees. Let's just call it five or six employees who all sign that, you know, we, we want to work remotely, um, under this uh, remote hybrid scenario of two days a week, three days a week, whatever you want it to be. And they sign a petition and they pass it up to the CEO. Now the CEO has this piece of paper in front of them, HR turned it into them. And, and the CEO looks at HR and says, what are we obligated to do, if anything? Yeah, in, under those circumstances, you're not obligated to do anything. Uh, but you are prohibited from doing certain things. You don't have an obligation to uh, honor the demand or the request uh, under the law, but you also, uh, by uh, you know, the flip side of that is, is you are prohibited from doing certain things, which is you cannot uh, terminate or discipline or retaliate in any way against those employees for advancing that petition. By uh, those employees, signing that petition, circulating the petition, signing the petition and passing it up to management. I wanna make it very clear that is in fact, per se, uh, protected concerted activity. There's under no the it national, depends in this one, is there? There is no it depends at all. It is protected concerted activity under section seven of the National Labor Relations Act. So these things get tangled. So I'm gonna tangle the web a little further, right? Now you take the position that Elon Musk has taken and said, no, look, I said, return to work or consider it resignation. Um, so you got this petition in your hand by a very small group of workers who have been working remotely in their minds successfully. 
And for whatever reason, the business owner doesn't have to have a reason beyond their preference says, nope, you return to work or consider it separation, even though they're holding the petition. Now, it's not because they're holding the petition. It's because their preferred policy is work in the office. That okay to do? It is okay to do. So, um, so, so yeah, let's parse that out just a little bit finer there. So what you're distinguishing between, Phil, is, is that the employer is not terminating or disciplining the employee because the employee engaged in protected concerted activity. The activity of circulating and then uh, advancing and signing and, and pushing up the chain of command, that petition, the employee under those circumstances would be terminated because they are not following the employer's requirement that they have to return to work. Yeah. Uh, and, and so there, there is a distinction there, and, and you're correct to point that out. And I, and I would suggest if you're anywhere close or near this situation, then you give Bert and Ogletree a call and let them help you craft a communication piece so you don't accidentally step in the wrong pile. Um, you just want to make sure that you say this the right way to avoid the identification and, and get yourself where it feels like you're addressing the concerted activity that might be uh, taking place because they are talking about it, right? There is a divide. I wanna see our poll results here, Nick, uh, if you can, but we wanna make sure we, we walk through that, that path very carefully. Help us out, Nick. All right, so our results, 66.7. Yes, our ownership wants employees to work in the office more than our staff does. Uh, behind that, we have no, our ownership and staff both have happily embraced remote and hybrid work. That's 16.7%. Uh, just over 11% say no, our ownership and staff both prefer to work in the office. Oh, wouldn't that be a wonderful world, huh? And then 5.6%, uh, wow. yes, our staff wants to work in the office more than our ownership is allowing. I'd love to hear some mm. comments on that. Yeah, that's uh, that's a very good poll, uh, very interesting poll result about how I would expect it to be. I've seen Michelle's comments that the owner does not want anyone to work remotely at any time. Um, and, and I understand that position. I think in today's world, that's that's not what I want. I want the flexibility for my employees to to work from home when it works to my advantage as the CEO. And I want them to work from home when it's necessary for them to be for their advantage, but for the purpose of collaboration, teamwork. Um, and I think what is a great culture here at AIM, I need people to be together more than they are uh, away from each other because that's when we work our best to serve you, our members. So that that's kind of my position on it. And um, I'm careful, uh, Michelle, when, um, when I find myself taking absolute positions. Mm -hmm. um, I want to be in, in a position that gives me flexibility for lots of reasons. All right. Um, let's see. The other thing that Bert and I have been chatting about before we get offline is we would love to get your comments and recommendations um, you know, the morning briefing is available in many different uh, formats. Obviously, we do it live because we want to be on top of whatever news came out last night uh, or in recent uh, hours before the podcast. So we're able to share that with you and give you an opinion on it right away. So you can start leading your business and reacting and responding. 
uh, but it's also available on every social media stream out there that we're aware of. Um, and if you do listen to it or you get the opportunity to give us a review, we would love to have that. We get so many positive comments about the help that we're providing. We do this for your benefit. We don't have sponsors that we're trying to make money on in doing this. We're doing this to help you lead your business. And anything that we can do to help that spread through our community so that we fulfill the mission that we're working under every day, which is creating great places to work for, for the purposes of creating great places to live will help us achieve that mission. So we would appreciate any comments and or recommendations you could give the program. Bert, anything else you want to add before we go today? No, not at all. I, I just real quickly want to thank all of the people who've been supporting the program, uh, you know, through the last couple to what, two, two plus years now uh, we've been, we've been at it and uh, hope, hope we get to continue as we, we start to approach uh, episode 200. And as we approach episode 200, um, we are going to be doing some new formatting. Uh, we have some big plans uh, uh, designed for episode 200 and beyond. So we look forward to sharing more about that as we get closer to that day. So stay tuned. We will see you next Thursday at 730 Central Time. Bye-bye. Tell your story, promote your products, communicate with your employees and customers vividly, dynamically, and powerfully. Whether it's a company video, recruitment video, online training, or live meeting, Feature Group can help you from scripting to highly polished finished production. Whether it's live or on demand, we have the skills and equipment to wow your audience and drive your message home. Feature Group USA. The one-stop shop for all your broadcasting needs.